Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift their voice, let the inhabitants of the rock sing, let them shout from the top of the mountains, let them give glory to the Lord. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club, where we are exploring the wonderful, imaginative, deep Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. As you all know, this is chapter four, and so you know the routine, which is that today I have a lovely friend joining me to talk about this this adventurous chapter. We are out um, of Kansas Toto and end the wild adventure of Wrinkle in Time. So today to chat about this chapter with me, I have my friend Sarah Cozart. Welcome on the show, Sarah. Hi, it's good to be here. So Sarah, give us a quick introduction to who you are and where you are and how you first encountered Madeline Lingle and how you feel about her. Well, um, I live in Texas right now, but I grew up in Virginia, so the mountains are kind of always in my soul. Um, I am a tutor. I work for an SAT, ACT prep company, and I also am a mom, and I also am the worship leader for a church plant here. Um, My husband is a Texan, and our son is now a native Texan. Oh my goodness. And I am transplanted. So um, I'm home most of the time right now, especially as most of us are home most of the time. But even before that, I was um, home a lot and reading a lot and... um, talking to a lot of friends on Twitter, and that's how I got to know Joy a couple of years ago. Yes. And then um, we got to meet at a conference in real life, which did. is so fun. We did, yeah. Yeah, Joy actually came within a couple of hours of me. I got to meet her and a couple of other friends, and it was fantastic. Yeah. So now we're real friends, not just internet friends. Although, I met my husband through a forum, and so we were internet friends 15 years ago before it was a little bit um, accepted to meet your husband on the internet. Let it not <laughs> so. be said that internet friends are not real friends. I have met Absolutely many, not. many kindred spirits through the internet. <laughs> 100%. With Madeline Langle, um, I was introduced to her books through the church library when I was growing up. My parents sort of figured everything in there was safe, so they pretty much just let me read whatever <laughs> I wanted from the children's or young adult section and then later from the, the adult section. But somehow the library's copy of A Wrinkle in Time had gotten lost. And so for years, I only read A Wind in the Door and A Swiftly Tilting Planet and Many Waters. And I reread them over and over. And then I started having money of my own when I started babysitting. And so I started buying books. And I bought the Time Quartet and I finally read A Wrinkle in Time. Um, But at first I had a harder time getting into it because to me, I guess because it was new to me, it felt more fantastical than the others. Hmm. But really, one of them has the children becoming small enough to go inside a mitochondrion, and one has time travel to antediluvian times, and one has time travel and space travel and a flying unicorn. So (laughs) I don't know why I thought it was too fantastical, but it's really grown on me, I think, as I've grown older. Mm. Um, I also devoured her Austin family series at the same time when I was discovering them all in the church library. Mm. Um, But 
Mrs. Murray and Mrs. Austin have always sort of been to me the epitome of what I wanted to be as a mother. Hmm. And you've talked a lot about Mrs. Murray on the podcast already, but just quiet, but willing to speak when it's the right time. Um, Mm -hmm. A good cook, but not fussy. Mm -hmm. able to see their children as individuals and let them sort of turn into their own people, um, Mm -hmm. as you've mentioned, and especially able to handle the chaos of four children and multiple pets, which especially the Austin family always (laughs) has many animals, but they have, she has so much grace and to welcome strangers like Calvin Mm -hmm. into the family as easily as she welcomed her own children. Um, I even had a very short lived blog. I think I had three posts on it that I named (laughs) the Murray Austin project because I wanted to document my ways that I could try to be like mm. her. I posted like three recipes on it and now it's defunct, but, <laughs> um, but I'm a big rereader. I cycle through most of my favorite books every year or every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I got older, I slowly added a few more of Madeline Langle's books until I have a pretty, I have a good two thirds of a shelf now, I think of her stuff, mostly the young adult fiction. And they're all part of my regular rereading rotation. Mm. And then in the last couple of years with the onset of my chronic pain, I've just really been had a lot more time for reading than before and I've branched out a lot and read a lot of new books, but sometimes I really need my old comfort stories. You know, they're, they're kind of places to go home to and Mm -hmm. the Austin family home and the Murray family home feel like homes to go home to. Mm -hmm. Um, but it really wasn't until about a year ago that I started checking Madeline's nonfiction Mm -hmm. out from the library. She and I are on a first name basis Mm -hmm. Um, as it should be. And I quickly, yes. (laughs) And I quickly, got even more obsessed with her writing as I started reading um, Walking on Water for a writing mentorship that I had to Mm -hmm. do last fall. And I've read three of the four Crosswicks journals Mm -hmm. and I got them for Christmas and they're so lovely. I just, each one I was sad when I was done at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't want them to end. So I bought them and now they're part of my rereading cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, But who she is as a person and as a writer and as a mother, and as you've talked about also, is just so inspiring to me. Um, and she shows up in different ways in her fiction. Like Mm. there are pieces of her, don't you think in Mrs. Murray and Mrs. Austin, but then also in Vicky and Meg and her awkwardness Mm -hmm. and their, um, their unsureness about themselves. I love, there's a, what I read the Crosswick, one of the Crosswick's journals last summer. And she talks about, uh, I talked about this Haley, but she's very kind of self-aware without being self-hating. And she talked about how she felt like she kind of looks like a giraffe and felt like she kind of had too long of limbs and she felt a little bit unsure of herself. And I think I kind of see that in Meg. And it's something I really appreciate because I feel like a lot of times awkward characters, you're like meant to think they're awkward or out of control, but really they're just kind of like totally normal, beautiful characters who happen to be wearing glasses. Right. Yeah. And uh, so with Meg, you're like, yeah, I really, I feel you. And I feel the discomfort of existing in the world and having too big of feelings and, and she just does it so well. And I think part of the reason she does is because she felt that way. But also, like you said, I, it's been so funny to me. I think one of the number one comments, whenever I put it, the discussion posts, everybody just loves Mrs. Murray and aspires to be Mrs. Murray. Um, Cause she really is just such a beautiful example. I think of motherhood. And I think that's what a lot of people find in Madeline's as I think I would say, I'm also on, first name basis. I think that's what a lot of people find and resonate with is kind of a, both a motherly and a sisterly character that they feel like they can be mentored and led, but also feel very like they can relate to and be understood as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they're all really just like old friends. Hmm. Um, Like I said, all the books and um, 
my son is four and we just started rereading, no, not rereading for me rereading, but for Mm -hmm. him reading for the first time, the Lion, the witch in the wardrobe last week. Um, and I cannot wait until he's a little bit older so I can start Mm -hmm. reading all of the Madeline Lingle stories that I grew up with to him as well. Yeah. Oh, that must be so fun. I always am jealous of parents and want to be one someday myself because you get the fun of reading all of your favorite stories to a little person who has never read them before. So, yes, I, I think I've been looking forward to this moment since before I was pregnant. <laughs> so, more than five years. My, one of my baby showers was a Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe baby shower. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of a theme, but yes, I was really realizing the other day that we had read the Hobbit to him, but he'd already mm-hmm. seen the movie. So it was a different kind of experience of reading mm-hmm. aloud because he knew what was going to happen. But we are entering in on the phase that might last the rest of our relationship together where we can share stories that we love. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that Mrs. Murray does also. I mean, in the chapter that we saw, maybe the last chapter, it was Calvin who mm-hmm. read Genesis yes. <laughs> to Charles Wallace. For his bedtime story. Exactly. And in other... Um, books where Charles Wallace is in them. He's someone reads him something from a scientific journal or something Mm. like that. But it's clear that the reading bedtime stories is so entrenched into their family culture Mm. um, that that's very impactful for me, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, it it was so fun the last time I got to see Lily, um, you know, sparse seeing people these days. But the last time I got to see Lily, she's finally at the stage where she kind of like gets reading aloud. And it's just such a special thing and such a uh, it's like you share a language and an imagination and there's so much research too into like if you did nothing else but you just read aloud tons and tons of books to kids like how much that does for them relationally and in learning and development it's just like this magic thing to it be able is. to share stories and to use imagination and, oh it's so good okay so <laughs> I guess we should dive into this week's chapter I'm Uh going to lean on you because you said you have bullet points and what happens. And I always try to just kind of like blow through. We can we can bounce back and forth, but blow through um, kind of the what happens in this chapter. And this is kind of an odd chapter to do that with. Right. Because up to this point, the narratives have been like, you know, a dark and stormy night or going to school or an evening with the family, with friends. All of a sudden we're blown into this with this wild world we've been swept up into the adventure and um it reminds me I've always been someone who has really crazy dreams my mom used to think that I was um like asking for attention because I'd get up in the morning and I would tell her everything (laughs) that I read you know being the youngest child she thought maybe she doesn't have enough attention but this reminds me of it it feels like a dream the way that she kind of emerges into the darkness and can't find her voice and then you have all these kind of fantastical things so we're very much in a different mode of being at this this stage so let's try to get just a broad sense of what happens this chapter and then we both kind of picked out a similar theme and we can just chat through that so what happens well the end of the last chapter they're clearly going to go somewhere and they Mm -hmm. get flung really into nothingness and Mm -hmm. we only get Meg's perspective but one thing that stuck out to me was that she screams for Calvin and her scream is thrown back at her and she chokes on it. I've had that happen Um, in so many dreams. I don't, yes. Yeah. Where you're like, I can't scream. This is a very familiar. I also have crazy dreams and I also tell many people about them and it has become a a quirk slash (laughs) annoyance to a number of people. So I completely relate. 
Um, but she can't feel her body. She can't see or hear anything. And then they all sort of in turn start emerging from wherever Mm -hmm. into this beautiful sunlit field with the delicious fragrance of spring. That Mm -hmm. was one of my favorite sections, just the way Madeline describes that. Um, the mountains are so tall that they can't see the tops of them. And then Mrs. What's it and Mrs. Who have a giggle fit, which is just (laughs) delightful. (laughs) I love the little Um, line where she says, um, the only way to deal with something deadly serious is to try to treat it lightly. Yes. That, Which is a I, clue to us. That's what's coming. Exactly. Yeah. That really, that kind of sums up the, it, I'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after that, Mrs. What's it transforms into this stunning flying beast. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether you have this on your cover, but on mine, there's this picture of her, um, where it looks, she looks kind of like a, an angel centaur yeah. man thing. I love and seeing it, all the covers of the various versions because Caitlin uh, Shass last week showed me hers. And they're almost, especially if they're like pre-1990, they're like incredibly bizarre. <laughs> yes, I know. I think I've seen the one that she mentioned and they are sort of terrifying. Yeah. They're, all of those science fiction fantasy covers, I think somebody was talking about their cover of The Hobbit one day. It just looked absolutely frightening. Um, but this one is... It's kind of pretty. It's, it's kind of pretty. And it does seem to capture a little bit of what they're trying to say about the majesty of this beast. But mm-hmm. um, Calvin bows down to it. Mm. And Mrs. What's it says, no, never to me, Calvin, never to me, which I thought mm. was really lovely. She's a created being just yeah. like him, just a different kind. And then the children ride on the back of this being to the top of the tallest mountain. But on the way, they stop in this field with more creatures like him, her, it, Mm-hmm. that sing what turn out to be the words from the Psalms that you quoted at the beginning. Mm. Um, and then they, they fly to the top of the tallest mountain. They wait for the sun to set and they see a shadow that blocks out the stars and they instinctively know that it's deeply evil. And they finally return um, back down to the lower levels of the planet. And they go back to Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch and Meg's ask if the shadow is what her father was fighting. Mm. And then the chapter ends. Mm. sort of a cliffhanger it is a cliffhanger and um yeah and it's it feels like almost like a vision like you feel like you're kind of it kind of is thematically setting up a lot of the rest of the book I think and um and something that struck me and we just kind of go back and forth is I've been this will come up a couple times but I've in the other book club I've been running on my patreon we've been reading uh Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. And one of the themes that comes up in that is she's wrestling with how can there be uh, a good and loving God and there can be evil. And the way that she describes evil, which is very in keeping with a lot of the Christian tradition, is 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 like this non-being, this nothingness. It's neither... It's neither... It's like darkness, but it's not even darkness. It's a lack of light. It's a nothingness that... Uh, kind of eats up at everything and it really reminded me of that when she was describing it I thought oh she's really she is really in the what you'd call the privation tradition right like that that evil is uh you know there's a whole part where she talks about you know you can stub your toe in the darkness um but this was a darkness not like that because it felt like it was just this swallowing up of everything that was good mm-hmm. and um so that was something that struck me as I read it I was like oh there she's doing it again. Everybody, she's, she's in that long line of trying to figure out what evil is. And it seems like it's this shadow. It's not anything. It's the swallowing up of everything that is good and beautiful. 
Right. It's like the world with all of the light sucked out of it and yes. all of the joy or yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's not even a thing. It's a lack of a thing. Right. Exactly. And that's lack what makes it terrifying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what were some of the themes that came out in this for you? Well, for me, it seemed like the entire chapter leading up to when they see the black thing was this sort of respite mm. in this place of completely stunning beauty. Um, they've had, like you said, the first couple of chapters, there's been some conflict. Meg is feeling how Meg feels. <laughs> um, <laughs> she with has all big, of her feelings. big feelings. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and they're worried about her, her father and Mrs. They're upset because Mrs. Murray is now worried and they've never seen her be worried. And then there's the joy of meeting Calvin, but there's a lot of up and down and there's the mm -hmm. confusion about how does Mrs. Wetsit know what is a, what a tesseract is and all of that. Mm -hmm. And now they're taken away and there's this big drama where Meg can't feel or breathe or see or, or touch or taste or hear. And then they're in this place of just serene, overwhelming beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost like the beauty is a way of strengthening them before they have to see this thing of such supreme evil. Hmm. Um, I wanted to read a little section, the way that she writes about their surroundings. So when Meg lands, she looked around rather, or she realizes where she is. She looked around rather wildly. They were standing in a sunlit field and the air about them was moving with a delicious fragrance that comes only on the rarest of spring days when the sun's touch is gentle and the apple blossoms are just beginning to unfold. Mm. It's so beautiful. And then she says they had left the silver glint of a biting autumn evening and now around them, everything was golden with light. Mm. Um, it just, just goes on to describe this beautiful place. And that seems to be on purpose, I think, mm. as a contrast to the some of sort of the chaos of where they've been, but also the fear and evil of what they're going to have to face. Yeah. It seems to me like it's, it's this preparation to be able to face the darkness that they kind of have to be rooted in beauty and rooted in a sense of what goodness is so that when they confront evil and darkness, they kind of have something to compare it to. And they also have this deep sense of this is not the truest thing. Mm -hmm. uh, not to go back to Julian, but just because it rem <laughs> reminded me very much and then I'll be off of her. Um, of in the opening, so this medieval text is about this wonderful anchoress, and she has all these, um, she she writes about these visions and these kind of wrestlings with God. But it's interesting because the first, like near the very, very beginning, in this vision, I saw a little thing the size of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, and it seemed to me as round as a ball, and I looked at it with my mind's eye, and I thought, what can this be? And the answer came in a general way, that it is all that is made. But I wondered how it could last, for it seemed to me that it was so small that it might have disintegrated suddenly into nothingness. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and always will, because God loves it. And in the same way, everything has its being through the love of God. And in this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God cares for it. And so this is like this opening vision that she has, where she looks at all of creation and she sees how fragile and small and breakable it is. But that the first thing she knows before she knows anything else is that it's made, that it's loved and that it's cared for. And then she launches into these long, you know, 
wrestlings with why is there evil in the world and this and that. But she's rooted in this first vision where she sees everything as created and loved and cared for. And it's like that kind of revelation of beauty is the thing that makes her able to confront these other dark things. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening in this chapter is they're encountering this place as created and loved and cared for and, you know, sung over and all, they're seeing all these ma majestic beings that are praising God and, and it's that kind of, it roots them. It's this, this first preparation of beauty so that when they encounter the darkness, uh, they're able to, they kind of have this rooting in beauty and this knowledge that the fundamental truth is the, that it's made, that it's loved and that it's cared for. I think that's exactly right. And I think one thing that is so interesting about Madeline Lingle is that she connects her fantasy, not fantasy worlds, because they all connect to the real world in her stories, but her fantasy stories, she still connects them all with God, yeah. the God that we know, instead of creating a different religion for a different place, yeah. which also is done very well. I mean, Narnia mm -hmm. is my favorite set of stories, and mm -hmm. that's what's going on there. But she always somehow if she takes you to a different place or a different planet or a different, uh, some kind of fantastical location or setting, she still connects. Um, she brings in Bible verses or quotes from what mm -hmm. seems to be the Bible, which I think that was a paraphrase of which Psalm was Psalm it? 96. Okay. Um, and she can, she just connects it with the fact that all of the universe is praising God and all mm -hmm. of the universe is made to glorify God. And mm -hmm. sometimes there's evil that prevents it from, filling its uh, purpose, I guess. Um, Reaching its full extent. Exactly, yeah. But she she somehow just fills all of the universe with meaning, even as she's writing these fantastical stories. So it's this interesting uh, bridge between stories that are strict allegory, like Pro Pilgrim's Progress, yeah. which are just meant, I mean, I suppose it's meant somewhat to entertain, but they're more didactic. They're yeah. more meant to sort of teach. This means this thing, this means that right. thing. Yeah. right. Um, and then there are the stories that are fully meant to entertain and just completely transport you. Mm -hmm. And she somehow completely transports you, but still brings these elements of Christianity into them in a way that doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head. Totally. One of the things I love about this, uh, too, is I love that they sing. Um, this is a theme in several fantasies like in Narnia when they have the creation of Narnia Aslan mm -hmm. sings it into being or in this is for the really nerdy amongst us in the opening um in the creation of Middle Earth in mm -hmm. the Silmarillion Iluvatar sings all of creation right. into being and I love the picture of evil in that because in in that the picture is that Iluvatar sings sings all of creation to being and then one of the rebellious angels sings his own song and creates this dissonance and this ugliness mm -hmm. but then Iluvatar is like ha ha you can't win and he and he reharmonizes it and makes it this beautiful mm -hmm. thing but I love in this that you have all of these majestic creatures kind of singing yes. and it reminds me of I'm sure it's quite an out of date um, physics theory but I want it to be real because I like it um, which is the idea of of string theory that they, you know, we've gotten down to atoms and particles and stuff, but they think at the core of physical reality are little vibrating strings mm -hmm. that are almost like, um, that are like sound rather than you know anything else, which would mean that the world is literally made up of music, like that the physical reality. And I just want that to be true. Like I just, I just, <laughs> <laughs> 
I just want that to be reality. Um, but yeah, but I think there's something just beautiful about the singing and that, that is like saying everything that is, is beautiful and good and upheld and created by a God who's loving and beautiful. Well, it's like the medieval um, cosmology that they called the music of the spheres. Uh Um, And I know that you had Michael Ward on your podcast a little while ago to talk about Planet Narnia, and that's one of my favorite, favorite books. Um, But just reading more about what they believed then, Mm -hmm. especially in Lewis's discarded image, um, which is a little academic, and Michael (laughs) Ward makes it a little bit more accessible. Um, but the way that they believed that all these different, um, heavenly bodies showed aspects sort of of the divine, um, and kind of influenced what was going on here, but really were all, um, ways to show the glory of God basically. And the idea that the entire universe is, is just full of music has been around for a very long time. It's kind of one of our almost instinctive beliefs about the universe. I feel like. I think so. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah. And it reminds me of, I did an interview with, um, Mary Hines on CBC a little while ago. And we were talking about Mm -hmm. that, that scene in Lord of the Rings where, um, they're near, you know, Mount Doom and everything's dark and terrible and dry. And, 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 uh, Sam says, do you remember the taste of strawberries? And I feel like that's what's happening in this section Mm -hmm. is it's like we're getting in our mouths the taste of strawberries Mm. so that whatever else comes you remember this humaneness and this beauty Mm -hmm. and that is like the gravitational center that they come back to you know yes absolutely and I also think even though you have these fantastic incredible otherworldly beings Mm -hmm. the rest of the place just seems a little bit more beautiful than earth Mm -hmm. it's not like they sent them somewhere where they it's completely beyond their imagining yeah. immediately. They just sent them somewhere that was like earth, but more beautiful and more majestic and more glorious so that they could sort of marinate in the beauty and the purity of it. Yes. She even mentions the purity of the flowers mm. um, when she has to hold those flowers that one of the beings gave her that give her oxygen, mm-hmm. um, that give all the children oxygen when they fly up to the top of the mountain, mm. the purity of their freshness, I think, or the freshness of the purity. Yeah. All of these things are, um, strengthening them, I think, against the darkness that they're going to have to see. Well, and I love that with the flowers too. It's literal, right? Because she, they like the flowers are like how they breathe when they mm-hmm. confront the dark thing. I kind of like that as an image for, you know, what are the flowers we take with us into the dark mm. world to be able to breathe? Do you know what I mean? As that, yes, it's kind of a picture of beauty literally being something that gives you oxygen when you're facing darkness. Which I love. Absolutely. I I have some things sort of looming over me. Um, and they, in the last couple of days, have felt very much like the dark thing, mm. um, including a fairly significant surgery. Um, mm. And so there's the idea of physical pain coming up sometime in the next whenever and mm. emotional pain. Um, and so I've been thinking as I was reading this chapter um, and praying over the last couple of days, what is the beauty that I want to marinate in and soak in? Yeah. Um, what is the joy and the whimsy that I want to go down into my soul? And of course, the obvious answer is scripture. Of yeah. course, I want to marinate in scripture. Um, and it's not that scripture isn't beautiful, but what are the some of the ways that God's beauty is expressed in the world in writing and mm-hmm. music and art that I can um, 
really strengthen myself with as I go into what's mm-hmm. going to be physically and emotionally difficult time in a couple of months. Yeah. It, it felt like this chapter was um, instructing me and reminding me that I need to do that. Reminding um, you to pick the, the beautifully fresh flowers to hold before your nose. Absolutely. And it was reminding me to think, is this one of the flowers that I want to be spending my time on right now? Mm, um, yeah. How much do I want to be what's the word that has come up for scrolling doom scrolling through Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) I like to call it binge watching the world burn. Oh, or that. Yes. That's similar. Um, do I, do I want that? Some of it, of course, Twitter was where we met. And so some of it, Twitter can be a wonderful place, but after a point, um, I find it not as life giving as it could be. Um, and so I think the, it's not necessarily urgency. It's not a life or death situation, but the fact that I have a dark thing kind of hanging Mm. over me, um, is making me a little bit more, um, Oh, what's the word intentional with my time and with the beauty that I take in. So I know that many people are going to groan when they hear this, but Mm. I've started and put down and picked up peace like a river a whole bunch of times and have not yet finished it. Uh And last night I read maybe 60 or 70 pages and got really, really a good days in. And I intend to finish it in the next couple days because I know it's one of those pieces of beauty. And so that was my first step was picking up something that was not necessarily one of my old books to go home to. Mm. Um, and so maybe just a little bit more challenging, but also that I know because of people that I trust, including you, mm-hmm. um, who have said that it is full of beauty and absolutely worth reading. It's not difficult reading either. I think it's just because well, some books just tired, get you, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I do remember reading *Peace Like a River*. I read it my senior year in college, and I, I remember. I think I cried when I finished it. I remember just sitting on the ground. I I don't know why I was reading on the floor in my dorm room, where I definitely had, or in my flat. I guess at that point I had an apartment definitely had like a couch so I don't know why I was sitting on the ground but I remember just laying on my back after reading it staring at my um my Christmas lights and having like existential feelings um and I think it's easy to and of course I am a broken record on this everyone knows what I think about this I think it's easy when we're in times like this where everything feels urgent and frightening and where we do feel rightly in some senses a a moral urgency or like we have to act or whatever we can feel like it's a waste of time to meditate on beautiful things, uh, to hold the flowers up to our noses. But I think that this chapter gives me a good picture, which is that if you face, if you face the dark thing without the flowers, you'll suffocate. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think the very way that we can know what is worth loving and worth fighting for is by keeping the oxygen of our soul alive with pictures of beauty and of goodness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just really think that's, that's, that's not frivolous. It's really right. centrally important, you know? And, um, and I think this is a beautiful kind of demonstration of that in this chapter. I totally agree. Yeah. I really love that. Um, Mrs. Who quotes from Euripides <laughs> and I, I love that in my edition, at least they actually put the Greek letters yeah. um, in the text. Um, nothing is hopeless. We must hope for everything mm-hmm. because I think that it's the beauty that kindles their hope. I yeah. think that's, that's going to be there and it's not, they don't even know yet necessarily what they're going to be going into. Yeah. Um, they don't even know what the nature of the nature of their fight or the ways that they'll be tempted. 
um, or the pain that they'll experience, but they're being taught to hope just by being in a beautiful place. Yeah. Um, and I've absolutely found that happening to myself. Um, when we went to the Rockies, uh, we went to, mm, what's the place you're gonna have to edit this out. What's the place where (laughs) one of the entrances of, um, the Rocky mountain national park. That's like an hour from Denver. Come on. Oh gosh. I I'm so bad at Colorado geography. Okay. Well, anyway, we went to Estes park. Estes park. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We went to Estes park a couple of years ago in December. Mm -hmm. Um, and just being around the hugeness of the mountains. And of course, being from central Virginia, I miss the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm. I have tried to build some beauty into my my home and my room mm-hmm. and the small things that I'm able to get to, depending on my chronic pain, what I'm able to do. Uh, but I really miss looking out the window and seeing something so huge, so mm-hmm. permanent and so beautiful, I think because of its hugeness and permanence. Mm. Um, and so I remember getting off the plane and seeing the mountains and my heart just lifted. Mm. And I just felt it had been a long, a long trip. Um, I was going with um, my son who was only one at the time because my husband was there for a conference and we were going to meet, meet him. And so we had been on two flights um, and had to nurse on the flight. And (laughs) it was, it was kind of a production, had to go rent the car and everything. But just the sight of those mountains Mm. grounded me and it kind of made me feel like everything's going to be okay. Mm. And then we did the same thing last summer. Um, My mom grew up in Vermont And of course I got my love of mountains from her. And so she and I and my son went to get away from the Texas heat in August. And we Mm -hmm. spent a week at an Airbnb in Vermont. And I had been working incredibly hard leading up to then. I had had a lot of physical issues um, because of my chronic pain, but we got there and I was just able to sit on the porch of our Airbnb and look at the hills and see the hay bales dotting them and see the sunset over the mountains. And it was just, it filled me, it filled Mm -hmm. me up. And then at the end of that trip, I ended up getting very sick. I ended up going to the ER a couple of times, ended up, I had a a bad infection, took me a couple of weeks to recover from, but I was looking at the pictures and remembering how I felt. And it felt like I said, those mountains had filled me up. Mm -hmm. They had strengthened my heart and looking at the mountains just brings me closer to the face of God, I think. Mm. And so I love that they have these huge high mountains that go even above the clouds Mm. in this particular place, in this planet that they're taken to. Um, Uriel, the third planet of the star, Malak in the spiral nebula, Messier 101. (laughs) I know. I love love how it's both incredibly mythic sounding and also very, uh, like, scientific. Um, Exactly, and specific. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me of one, I guess I'll... I have to go soon because my family's watching Poirot, that there is something about experiencing beauty that makes life feel possible, even in the midst mm-hmm. of pain. It does. It kind of opens our souls, I think, to yeah. be more receptive to the ways that God might work. Yes, I think so. Um, so who knows what what the dark thing will be and what they're going to have to fight um, right. all of that lays on the edge. So, um, I can't wait to hear what everybody thinks about this week's chapter and what it brings up for them. But I hope most of all that it will be a reminder to all of us to, like you said, marinate and beauty and see that as an important and worthwhile thing to do. Um, Sarah, where should people find, follow and, um, whatever you're doing, whatever beauty, beauty you're marinating and where can they find it? 
Well, um, like Caitlin said last week, I'm on Twitter way too much. So, <laughs> um, you can find me at Chatane, which is C-H-A-T-A-I-N-E. Um, mm-hmm. And some of it's just posts about my dog's idiosyncrasies and my son's four-isms. Um, but some of it's responses to theological debates or just things I've enjoyed lately or led me to wonder. Um, mm-hmm. I occasionally write for Fathom Magazine. I had a piece come out in the most recent issue. So if you go to fathommag.com, scroll down a little ways, there's a little picture of a dog and a link to the piece by me, which is, I think it was called um, The Talking Beasts of Narnia. And so you shared and you recent. shared that with me and Haley after we talked mm-hmm. about um, the spiritual discernment of pets. It was really beautiful. Um, and then I also have a newsletter called The Natural and the Numinous, hmm. where I pull together pieces of beauty that inspire me and I write little essays about them and try to sort of connect each issue. Um, sometimes it'll just be like a leaf from one of my plants in the backyard or a piece of Renaissance art or a song or a poem or an essay. Um, and they mostly have a little of everything. Grant, it has been so lovely to have you on Sarah. Um, I wish you a beautiful day, um, and a beautiful week of marinating and beautiful things. I think I've said the word beautiful many (laughs) times. (laughs) It doesn't get old. It doesn't indeed. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure to go and chime in the discussion on Instagram and Facebook. Every week I learn something new, and um, it's just delightful to see all your comments. So go in and chime in in the discussion there, and join me next week for Chapter 5. We are almost halfway through. Wow. Can't Uh wait. All right. Thanks, everyone.